When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, quick show of hands. How many of you wake up with the thought that your life is lived in a million tiny moments, mostly unseen? And that's your life, the way you live when no one is looking. My guest on the podcast today is a sort of social justice wonder woman that understands and lives out this truth in incredible ways. Her name is Flynn Coleman, and she is an international human rights lawyer, which is amazing, and that's attention-getting in and of itself. But she's also an educator, an author, and she's the CEO of Milena, a socially conscious fashion line that focuses on empowering women artisans around the world. (laughs) She has done work with the United Nations, the United States federal government, and corporations and human rights organizations around the world. And if that's not enough to impress you, Flynn is also a contributing writer for publications like HuffPost, Global Citizen, and our friends at Darling Magazine. And Flynn is also the founding fellow at the Grunin Center for Law and Social Entrepreneurship at NYU School of Law, which is, again, just outrageous and amazing. I loved this conversation with Flynn. I just felt like it was really natural, really fun. I love diving into her story, but then also how each of us can kind of live out our stories in a similar way to the way that Flynn has lived out hers. For those of you who are new to the show, I am Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with resilient and crazy wise people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact for the good of humanity. I think that we could all use Flynn's words and stories this week. I promise it will leave you feeling anything but ordinary. Let's just jump straight into this. Oh my goodness, Flynn. I am so excited to be talking with you today. You and I have known each other for a little while now. We both followed each other on social media. We met in Atlanta at... We were both speaking at Plywood Presents earlier this year. But honestly, the question I want to start off with is, how would you describe what you do? Because I feel like you do (laughs) so much and there's so many lives that you've lived that, I don't know, I never start a podcast like this, but I feel like I have to. What do you do? do? Well, I'm so excited and honored to be here too. It's so fun speaking with you. And this is a great question that obviously all of us are thinking about all the time. So I'm an international human rights lawyer, and essentially everything I do revolves around this core belief that we're all equally and intrinsically valuable, and we all have a voice that matters, and we all have a story to tell. So I speak and teach and write about the future of what's going to shape human rights, what's going to shape humanity. And so everything I do kind of revolves around that core idea. So Essentially, I have conversations with people around the world to try to figure out how we can all build a brighter future together for everybody. That is amazing. I love that. That's a great overarching theme to a life and your life. Where did this 
begin, though, for you? I mean, because I feel like there's two ways that this can go. One is, like, I had, like, no connection to this my entire life and had an existential crisis and then decided to do this. Or it's almost the inverse of, like, oh, this has been part of my life the entire time. Do you think that's, first of all, a, a fair dichotomy? And second, you know, which applies to you, if so? I think about these flashpoints that might have kind of veered me in a certain direction. I mean, I had incredible role models and people around me that kind of mirrored this behavior and, and how to treat people. You know, one thing I point to, and I think you'll love this story, is so when I was 13 years old, I went to Italy for the summer to live with a family in a tiny, tiny little town, six hours north of Rome to play soccer. 13 years old. Yeah. So that was kind of my first experience living abroad kind of on my own, right? Like pre-internet, like pre-cell phone. I was just That's like- wild. Going. And, and, and your um, parents are just like, yeah, like we'll send her off to- to Italy as like a <laughs> literally your first year of being a teenager? Well, I think you kind of, you know, you, you read my mind on that one because I had parents who believed in me and who were always there, um, but also kind of reminded me that, you know, it's their job to try to teach you, keep me safe, but that it's my job to try to fly and to help people when I can. So none of this would have been possible without people that believed in me. And to this day, it's the same thing. I mean, I'm afraid anytime I do anything, but I know that I have people who will be there whether I soar or whether I fall. So I've been an athlete my whole life and I went to play soccer and to live with this family. And it was literally in this tiny little town. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I was afraid. I spoke Spanish, but no Italian at the time. They spoke no English. And it was kind of my first day there. And I, they, they drove us to this tiny little like cinder block home in the middle of a cornfield. I remember meeting the, their cat named Figaro. <laughs> I walked upstairs and I thought, what am I doing? You know, um, and I'm unpacking my things and I started to hear these faint noises coming from I don't know where. Uh, and it sounded like guitar strumming maybe or noises or singing. And I just thought, what is going on? What have I got myself into? And I remember walking to the front door and I look out and it's the tiniest town and the entire village had come like in this parade of song and dance to welcome me home. And it was in that moment that I just realized that we're all, despite our differences, so much the same. And they had made a home for me. And home is kind of anywhere you're with people that love you. And, and the woman that I lived with had faced a lot of discrimination. I think I really kind of understood that more and more as I got older. And that wait, was how so? Just because she was um, she was different than than other people where she was from. And it, in the time, I think I didn't fully understand, especially because we were treated with so much respect and love, and we had such an incredible time. But um, I think about her kind of as this model of the person that I wanted to be in everything that she did. And um, the other people that spent time with us were just so kind and so warm. They made a home for us. They came home every day to cook us meals. They took us everywhere. And it was just kind of this extraordinary moment where I realized we're all so much the same and that everyone deserves to have their voice heard and everyone deserves kind of a place to call home and to feel safe and to also feel like they can make choices about who they are in their future. So that is just like one kind of, of, of many experiences I've had just learning from extraordinary people. That's amazing. And so you start off your teenage years, like your formative, you know, years living in Italy, you come back to the States at some point. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was there for a summer and I ended up traveling um, starting in high school almost every summer after that. But yes, I came back home to the U.S. Did you feel like when you got back to the U.S., did you feel different than your friends who had never left the States? 
I think about that a lot too, as I spent, um, I was born here in the States, but I spent a lot of my life living abroad. And a lot of that time living abroad, you know, before the era of smartphones and the internet. So when you went abroad, like you went abroad (laughs) and you were there. And um, it's interesting. I have conversations with people that have spent a lot of time abroad too. And in a way you can feel different when you get back. It's interesting actually, because when you go abroad and you go away, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, you kind of expect to feel different. You might look different. You might, you know, kind of be pointed out as someone who's a foreigner. So you're expecting to feel a little out of place. I think what's what's less expected is when you come home and have kind of that reverse culture shock, having learned and, and seen new things. And that can be a little bit more difficult, I think, because you're expected to feel right at home at home. And um, I think that Yes, there's been difficulties, but I mean, the conversations I've had with people all over the world, the travels I've been fortunate enough to have have just kind of been extraordinary in so many ways because, you know, it's all about like celebrating the beautiful pulsing diversity of life, but also realizing we all bleed the same blood and we're all so much the same and that you're just one conversation away from being friends with anyone around the world. And that home really is when you're with people you love. And it's interesting too, because I spent so much time traveling and abroad, but it's interesting because I have, I'm so close with my family and my friends. I've had my same best friend since I was two years old and we talk all the time and we now have all this incredible technology that allows us to stay in touch. So it's this interesting thing where I spend a lot of time traveling, but I'm so, so close with the people I've known my whole life. Kind of along those lines, I was thinking about how you were playing soccer at this age and you were traveling playing soccer and I've never really cared about soccer before uh up until I guess a few years ago I was spending time in I think Rwanda and I was with this guy named Justin Zarati who started this nonprofit. these numbers have faces and he's really passionate about soccer and I was like dude I, I don't get it like I don't understand this sport like why <laughs> why does it mean so much to you and he says honestly Brandon like I love soccer because it's this global language. Like it connects us more than anything else in the world. And that was when I first started to maybe care about soccer. And I would imagine you you probably cared about soccer because you liked playing soccer. But it's interesting how it's like the only sport that is just absolutely global. You can go anywhere in the world and you can bring up, you know, Liverpool or you can bring, you know, whatever it is and, or you can, you know, just get out a ball and and everybody kind of speaks this universal connective language and that connectivity is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so much to say about that. Yeah. I mean, I've been playing my whole life um, and there's a lot of interesting things to kind of do with that, especially being a a female soccer player. And in the U S women have been playing a long time. And I I credit being involved in team sports with so much. It was so character building. You learn how to work as a team. You learn how to be a leader. You learn how to pick others up when they've fallen. You know, you learn how to pick yourself up when you've fallen. So it's an extraordinarily important part of who I am. And just like you said so beautifully, this global language. I mean, when I lived in Cambodia, I played on a soccer team. And I, I will never forget when we would go out to play kind of on this dirt field, I would see these young Cambodian girls would come to watch with their eyes so wide. Oh my gosh, there's a girl out there doing that. I can do that too. So it is this global language without even speaking. Also, like you said, soccer in particular can be played anywhere, anytime. There's this incredible story I heard once about this a man in the Congo, and he would make soccer balls for the kids out of trash. 
And so all you need is a space. You need people to play with you and you need literally a ball of anything. And this man would build these soccer balls for kids. And so that is all it takes, like you said, to create this community and this global language. I, in another story that I'll never forget, I used to live in Chile and I played on a men's soccer team when I was there. At the time, there were no women's soccer teams. And I went out the first day and everyone kind of looked at me, you know, a little bit strange, but I was invited to try out for the team. And we had our first game on the pitch, kind of a dirt pitch. And at the beginning of the game, (laughs) everyone lined up, you know, you line up to shake hands before the game and everyone shook hands with the opposite team, the team we were playing, except when everyone got to me, they kissed me on the cheek. And (laughs) we played the whole game, all 90 minutes of it. um, And my team ended up winning. And then... (laughs) We lined up after the game and everyone shook my hand. No more kisses <laughs> on the cheek. And so it's just like you said, this perfect example of this global language that can bring us together. And it's a symbol for so many things too. Um, so yeah, it's, an, it's a very important part of who I am. But I also just say soccer, of course, means a lot to me. But I, I believe that being involved in any type of community, organized sports or anything like that can have such a powerful effect. So yes, soccer is a global language and it's very special to me, but there's so many different ways to create that, that community as well. Okay. So you're living internationally, like off and on, you know, obviously 13, but then summers, you're having these cool connective experiences. What did you think that you were going to be when you grew up at this point? <laughs> this is a great question. I, I'm still wondering what I'm going to be when I grew <laughs> up, right? <laughs> Aren't we all in a sense? Um, I, I think from early on, I had a sense of what I believed as a human being and what I believed about every person having this same intrinsic value. And so I don't know if I was articulating it at that point, um, I've always wanted to be someone who writes. So I've always wanted to be a writer and I've always um, written. So that's kind of very foundational to who I am. And by the time I got to college, I was in a program that had a very kind of specific, incredible curriculum focused on international affairs. And I worked with some extraordinary professors and got involved with some amazing organizations that were doing human rights work. Um, so I think that that helped me crystallize what I had seen from these people that I admired and what I, what I understood from uh, traveling that we're all equal and we all deserve a chance to have our voice heard. But of course, sometimes the world doesn't work like that. And that this idea that MLK and, and others have said, which is that if an injustice happens to you, it happens to me. And uh, I'm not free until we're all free. And so I think I had the very fortunate kind of luck to be exposed to some incredible people, strangers, people that I knew, friends, family, teachers that that modeled that behavior and kind of helped me see what I wanted to try to do. Do you think that it's remarkable that even though you were having this this experience, it was, I mean, I, I guess I don't know fully, but it seems pretty privileged, you know, to be able to get to travel so much and live in these wonderful places that you still, you know, were able to you know, see things in those terms to be able to say like, oh, like if an injustice happens to them, it happens to me because it could be easy to just say, I know for me and, you know, growing up, I think it's easy for me to say, oh, like I'm, I'm unaffected. I'm okay. And I can do something. It's almost like a pity instead of like getting down on people's level. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I think this idea of privilege and injustice is of course very relevant now, but it's always been relevant and it's, it's a constant learning process. I think there's always something to learn, which I think is a big part of understanding privilege, which is that even if someone, even if I care 
And I, I pride myself on really trying to understand and be empathetic that there's always something more to learn and there's always experiences I would never truly understand. So that's definitely like a continued learning uh, path that I think we all take. I think that that's an incredible question because where does that come from? Where does that understanding come from? And I think that you have to be intentional about it because it is really easy to say, well, this doesn't affect me. You know, and so it takes really kind of having some experiences, yes, or meeting other people, um, yes, or realizing that we're all kind of connected and we're all in this together at the end of the day and that it's all interconnected. So, you know, I can fight for civil rights, but if I don't have a planet to live on, what's the point? And when you think about it kind of in the grand scheme of things that we're all kind of floating on this big wet ball in the dark together, (laughs) but ultimately we're all on the same team. And you're right. It would be really easy to be unaffected, but I'm not so sure about that because ultimately your life is lived in a million tiny moments, mostly unseen. And that's your life. That's who you are. Your character is who you are and how you treat people when no one's looking. So yeah, maybe it's easy to be unaffected in the short term, but ultimately it's about figuring out, you know, when you look back at your life, what do you want that to say about who you are and what you tried to do? So for me, the opposite is much scarier, which is, I, you know, no one, by the way, saves the world. You, know, you can only really save yourself ultimately. So there is no such thing as kind of saving the world, but you can try. And no one of us is ever going to get there. No one of us, you know, people ask that all the time. Well, but you see all of these horrible things and, you know, ultimately you're never going to fix all of them. And no, we're not. But I think it's in the striving and the trying to be a good person. And that's whether you help a million people or one, or whether you buy groceries for your grandma, or whether you walk the dogs at the shelter. These are all ways that we can give back. There's no big or, or small way to do it. There's only the trying. And I think that ultimately, you know what I mean? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, the race is only against yourself. And you want to think about when you're 95 and you look back at your life, what do you want to what do you want to see kind of in the story that you've told? Because also the way you live is the story you tell the world about who you are and the legacy you want to leave when we're gone, because ultimately it's, it's rather fleeting. And so that's the other thing is that for me, the most interesting thing is what can I do to help other people? How can I, how can I help other people in some small way? Because that's what lasts everything else. As my grandma would say, the rest, you can't take it with you. (laughs) (laughs) I just wrote down a quote that you just said, no one of us can save the world. We can only save ourselves. That is a fascinating idea. And it's actually, it's it's almost refreshing to think about that and be like, oh, well, like I'm not necessarily responsible uh, for everybody else. And, you know, obviously our lives can have profound impacts on the people around us. Um, so it's not saying like, oh, just worry about yourself, but it's almost like Hey, start with yourself because that's the only way that goodness can flow out of you. Mm-hmm. That's really beautifully said. I think, actually, I think about you um, when, when, when you just said that. And, I, and I'm certainly not the first or the only person to have that idea. Joseph Campbell said something similar. Um, and that I think ultimately, like you said, it's that we're, we're insignificant, but it also makes us so powerful. And like when I read what you're doing about all the incredible stories that you um, are putting out there in the world and reading about these incredible people. Just like you said, it's the sense of relief that there are incredible people out there doing amazing work all in their different corners of the world. And that feels so incredibly good to me to understand that, that we're all trying to kind of carry this torch in any way that we can. And I think the other reason it makes me feel relief is that when we think about the fact that we're 
insignificant or that we're ants in the wind. It's really freeing because like you said, no one can save the whole world um, at all. No one can save anyone but themselves, but that kind of frees us up to do the things that matter to us and to, you know, surround ourselves with the people and the causes that make us feel alive because ultimately that's what we have. So I agree. It's this sense of relief and this freeing sense that ultimately it doesn't truly matter. So that, you know, frees us up to kind of go after what matters to us because our time here is short. So I really, I really love what you said. And like when I read your newspaper, I, I just, I have this incredible sense of warmth and happiness at all of these people out there, because there's always going to be horrible things out there, but there are always, as you say, the helpers too. They're there and it's in this, this striving and this trying that we understand that kind of, that's where our life gets meaning in those moments. So I couldn't agree more. Thank you. Fast forward a little bit. Uh, do you go to college after high school? I did. Yes. Okay, where'd you go? I went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service. Awesome. Great. What'd you study? Um, so this is kind of what I was talking about before. So I was in the School of Foreign Service, which is a very focused curriculum on international affairs. So I studied culture, politics, international law. Um, and I also did an honors thesis in justice and peace studies. And then as part of that, um, I was abroad in Chile, what we were talking about before. So... Yes, it was a very focused curriculum and it was really, really extraordinary. Uh, the professors, the people I was able to meet and what I was able to do, it was really, there There were some incredible people that really helped guide me. After you graduated from Georgetown, did you have to go to, I don't know how being a lawyer works at all. Did you go to law school after that? <laughs> yes. So um, after college, I uh, was a loose scholar. So there's an incredible organization um, that sends people to Asia every year through the Henry Luce Foundation. And I was a Luce scholar. I was fortunate enough to be part of this incredible community. And so I lived in Hong Kong and Cambodia, and I worked on human rights issues with the Asian Human Rights Commission. So I did that directly after um, college. And then from there, I moved to Geneva to work with the UN Refugee Agency. So the High Commissioner for Refugees No in big Geneva. deal. Just, just whatever. <laughs> just moved to Geneva. <laughs> It's incredible. That's so awesome. Oh, it was. It was really an extraordinary experience. I feel so, so lucky to have had it. And then um, I moved to Paris um, and promptly fell in love with what would become my favorite city where my heart lives. And I spent time studying um, French history and philosophy there. So it was really, yeah, it was an extraordinary time. And then and then at that point, I, um, I had applied to law school already, but I was uh, putting it off because I was having such an extraordinary time. And then uh, my dad was like, all right, Flynn, <laughs> time for law school. <laughs> so I, at that point, went back and started um, my JD degree. And it ended up being extraordinary. I actually loved being in law school. I loved learning kind of from the incredible professors there, from my classmates. And I spent part of uh, law school in Senegal, which was a really eye-opening, extraordinary experience, too. Um, and I learned... I was there and um, I was doing work on resource governance and water law. And I was also helping um, with writing a report um, regarding um, a war crimes trial that would, that would later take place for someone, um, for someone that had been involved in war crimes. So it was just 
again, this opportunity to have conversations with people in the law school there, but also different lawyers, different people. Everyone I met taught me something new. And um, I really kind of, not only did I dive into, I was learning about Senegalese constitutional law. I was learning about Islamic law. I was learning about um, human rights and environmental law in a completely different place. So again, it's just kind of in the listening and the learning from other people that you really start to understand how much how much you don't know and um, how much you can learn if you're kind of really open to having experiences and to understanding that you might think something as a certain way, but that's just based on your background experience. I'm sure you think about this a lot too, but we all come from like such different backgrounds and experiences. And I think it's so important to kind of bring that awareness to everything that we do. And so it was just such an exquisite opportunity. I'd worked with a professor to be able to have this opportunity and again, I learned so much when I was there. Um, I also, while I was living there, had the opportunity to climb Kilimanjaro with uh, my dad, which was just such an incredible experience in so many different ways. And again, just to understand how other people, how other people live and how similar we are underneath it all. And so I just consider myself very, very lucky to have had those experiences. It's interesting to me thinking about this idea of, you know, being in these places where people have totally lived in completely different contexts than you. Therefore, you know, there's so much to learn from them, but then you're also studying and then practicing law, which is, I guess I don't know like the whole philosophy behind law, but I would imagine it's much more black and white than that. How do you wrestle with these two alternating ideas? I think that there's a difference between, you know, what the law should be, what the law is, what it is in different countries, and then legal education and how we're taught to think about the law. So the law, you know, for me, are these ways that humans have come together to coexist. And the idea behind the law is that we should all be um, treated equally under the law and that it should pr protect us all equally. And of course, in practice, <laughs> that doesn't um, necessarily translate. But in terms of kind of the nuts and bolts, the law and the legal systems are completely different depending on where you are, which is why this idea of international law is so challenging. Because we have this idea of international law, which is behind uh, the United Nations War, Crimes Tribunals, the Rome Statute, and all of these ways that we as sovereign nations are trying to work with each other, right, in, an, in a globalized system. But the trick there is that every nation is sovereign. So that's what's tricky about something like international law, because no one country is bound to follow those laws. We're only bound to follow the laws of the country that we're in. And so I think you, you bring up such an important point, because I think sometimes do, people do think it's very um, logic-based and black and white. But ultimately, for me, the law is, is this idea of how do we how do we come together to solve problems and to protect and defend and enforce people's rights? So you've really highlighted a difference between what the law should be and what kind of happens in, in reality. And it is, and it's very nuanced and very complicated, like you kind of brought up, that for me, it's actually a very creative process of trying to figure out what are the laws and how do we say what we want to say so that people can be protected? And then also kind of how do we connect the laws and the policies um, kind of in the abstract with the daily lives of people. So part of what I found being a human rights lawyer, and I was a war crimes and genocide lawyer and worked at the UN's tribunals, is that law is so incredibly important. And so having a tribunal after um, a, an atrocity or a crime against humanity or genocide is so critical. But for me, I want to understand how do we rebuild as societies? How do we rebuild political, economic institutions? And 
law and policy ultimately are what we need to change. That is essential. So on a governmental level, on a policy level, we need to create laws. But what I was seeing is that, you know, in a place like Cambodia, for example, when you had the tribunal after the genocide, it was mostly aging perpetrators who might or might not be convicted very, very far away from people that were trying to rebuild their lives. In Rwanda, where you've been as well, after the genocide, yes, the war crimes tribunal is so important, but people also need their homes rebuilt or they're going back to, a Tutsi is going back to live next door to Hutu and how do they reconcile? So I think that this kind of more expansive definition of how do we reconcile and move forward is such an essential component of the law, which is why I'm a proponent for things like truth commissions, because the law is important. But and it's also, I think, why social entrepreneurship is important and why I became involved in that, because we want to figure out, you know, if I died tomorrow, is there someone's life who is better because I was here in the daily lives of people? How can we support people while we're kind of in that long grinding work of making the laws better? So you pointed out it's a very complicated, nuanced issue. You know, in those more long-term sustainable, you know, concepts, is is that part of your job as a human rights lawyer? Or is that is that something that like you're able to use your practice of law to impact? Or do you have to do all of that outside of this day job of law? There's so many different things that a lawyer and specifically a human rights lawyer might do. And that can, of course, happen on the domestic level. That can happen on the international level. We can be working on policies and laws, like you said, to change them long term. Or we can be advocating for our clients on an individual level, supporting people who have been uh, mistreated or abused in a certain way. We can be looking, um, one of the things I do is look at how we can use technology to support um, the protection of human rights. So I think, again, you bring up this incredible point in the long term, what do we want to be doing to shape human rights, Uh, which is a question I think about a lot in the writing I'm doing now. And then in the short term, what are we doing to support people every single day? So I ultimately became a social entrepreneur as well, because there are some barriers to entry to markets, to empowering yourself that are, are very kind of simple. You know, a, a woman in Rwanda sometimes just needs the ability to open a bank account and start a business. And I think what I've seen is that people know what they need and they know how to do it. It's just a matter of providing agency and opportunity. So I see this as, again, it's this, the same idea we were just talking about, which is no one saves the world. All you can do is provide agency and opportunity because people know what they want. They just need the ability to make those choices. And that's kind of what I've seen in conversations with people around the world. Survivors, the incredible, courageous, resilient people that I've met, they know what they need. They know how to do it. They just need the opportunity and the agency to make choices about their own lives. So no one does anything alone, right? And so it's going to take kind of... um, Everyone coming together to kind of bring their incredible creative skills, whether that's legal, whether that's anything else, to kind of make these things happen. And so there are things we can do in the short term to support individuals, and there are things we should be doing in the long term to be creating systems that protect all of us. It's a really great question. That's such a good answer because you touched on at the end this idea that, I don't know, I think it'd be really easy when you're doing any sort of international aid or international assistance to fall into the trap of thinking that people need you to like step in because they can't do things themselves. But I think that when you touch on this idea of systems, like that's huge. Like everybody knows exactly what they want and like they they have the agency and ability 
to take that next step if there is a system for them to do that inside of. I don't know, like short-term aid is really effective, but I love this like long-term sustainable change. Like that's what gets me excited. That's what like I love to fill the good newspaper with is these stories of people who are just creating new systems for people to thrive inside of because it's so much more long-term. So true. It's so well said. It is. And it's exactly what you're doing in highlighting these incredible stories of people around the world. And it's exactly kind of as you said, it and humanitarian aid is life-saving. In times of crisis and war, it literally saves lives. But like you said, we ultimately need to be thinking about solutions that are locally led. So the idea behind that, and it's also kind of, you know, what I believe is part of kind of a teaching philosophy, which is ultimately you want to be able to leave and have people, like you said, kind of do things on their own terms. People know what they want. They just lack access to opportunities that other more privileged people might have. And so that providing this autonomy and this agency um, for people to live their lives and make their own choices is so, so essential. And like you said, there are incredible people working to change those systems every single day. So how do we provide access so that more voices can be heard, so that we be more inclusive, and so that people can provide their own solutions for themselves, their families, and their communities? So it's just so beautifully said. And it is exactly what, what you're highlighting, because this is happening all over the world. People are doing this. They just need the opportunity. Um, So yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thank you for the affirmation. But I want to defer to you on this question and just say, okay, but how do we do that? Like, how do we truly do this? Obviously, you are, you know, an international human rights lawyer, uh, and you have the opportunity to travel a good amount. But for people who, you know, aren't in the world of law, or maybe, you know, don't have the opportunity to travel internationally a whole lot like how can we step in and do that not even on an international level necessarily like just in a way that you know creates systems that are sustainable and and, and allow people to grow and thrive and I know that's a big pie in the sky question but I don't know what's something practical you can offer up because I do see you as an authority figure in this idea So I teach a class on exactly this, on making a difference and changing the world. And kind of, we've already touched on the first big spoiler alert, which is there is no such thing as saving the world. There's kind of saving yourself and doing the best you can do. And then the second thing is that there's no one way to make a difference. And there is no big or small way to make a difference because, you know, Mother Teresa herself even said, I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across the waters to create many ripples. And we don't know what ripples we're going to create. That's the thing. You know, you might think, oh, well, I'm not, you know, saving millions of people. So what am I doing? But when you buy groceries for your grandma, you know, that that's life-saving work. When you adopt an animal from the shelter, you've saved a life in that sense. Or if you have an incredible skill and you volunteer a little bit of your time, Or you work for a huge company and you take a leadership role, like an entrepreneurship leadership role to say, hey, this is a project we should get involved in. There's no one way to do it. And not only that, we don't even know how big the ripples are going to be. So you might think it's a small step, but the ripples alone could be completely life shattering. So it's kind of this idea that um, Robert Thurman said, which is that you know, you want to stay close to what makes you feel alive and on fire because that's what the world needs. And that is what the world needs. The world needs your voice because no one else can say things the way you can. That's why people should speak, you know, their truth, even if their voice is really shaky. That's why, you know, we need to speak up for what we believe in because if you don't, no one else will because no one else could be you. And so there is literally no one way to do this. You might love 
I mean, I had this incredible experience actually after we spoke in Atlanta at Atlanta Symphony Hall. I would this woman after my talk, she sent me this email and she runs these events in this gardening club. And I thought, okay. And she sends me this email and she says, you know, you gave this talk and it gave me so much to think about that I'm going to start organizing these events around the future of technology in my gardening club. You know, I know it's not necessarily <laughs> aligned, but it was like she saw a need. She saw something. She said, I haven't thought about this before, but who cares? I can do it. And she's organizing the events because she had the skill to organize events. And so it's just like, she is who I'm talking about. She thought, okay, I have this skill. I want to do this thing. I, I don't 100% know what I'm doing because, of course, newsflash, none of us do. But I'm going to give it a whirl in any way that I can, right? And I just, she just completely blew me away. And I thought, this is what I'm talking about. These are the people, these are the kind of world shakers and world changers because everyone can just do what they can with what they have at the moment. And that's enough. And that's everything. This is the key moment that I am definitely leaving this episode with. When Flynn said, for me, the most interesting thing I can do is help other people in some small way, because that's what lasts. The rest, you can't take it with you. What an inspiring and resilient soul Flynn is. I'll never get over the fact that she is someone that is doing so many more important things than I can count but she still understands that she alone cannot save the world. She can only play her part well. That's an incredible and beautiful reminder. You should absolutely check out Flynn and her inspiring work on social media. She and I first connected on Instagram, so that's a great place to follow both of us. And during our episode, Flynn mentioned that she had gone down the path of social entrepreneurship, and that's specifically with her organization and brand, Milena. Milena is a socially conscious fashion line that focuses on empowering women artisans around the world, and it's definitely worth checking out. You can find out more at milena.com. Do you want more inspiring conversations with incredible people? Make sure to check out the Sounds Good archives. Two episodes that I think that you might like if you liked this episode are our conversation with Blythe Hill, the founder of the amazing nonprofit Dressember, and our conversation with Aaron Erickson, the CEO of So Worth Loving. You'll love both of these episodes, I assure you. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, Good, Good. Thank you so much to Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio for editing and mixing the show and to Christy Karen Brock for her production support. You can get lots more hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at at Good, Good, Good. Co. We do a lot of things for the sake of messy hope here at Good Good Good. One thing that we do is every Tuesday we release a good news letter. <laughs> we send out five good news stories worth knowing about delivered straight to your inbox. The good newsletter was not born out of an attempt to avoid the reality of the world's greatest pains, but to find the helpers and hopeful stories happening right within them. Make sure to check it out at goodnewsletter.org and get some good news in your inbox on Tuesday. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out with the hopeful knowledge that your responsibility is not to save everything, but to be present in the beautiful place you are right now. Keep on seeking messy hope. Sound good? <laughs>